All right, Wrestling With Theology fans, this is Monday, so we are standing in the confessional corner. I am Pastor Doug Minton, your guide for this run through the Lutheran confessions as we learn what we believe, teach, and confess regarding the great doctrines of the faith. And for the rest of the month of January, we're going to be talking about something that doesn't seem like it ought to be a great thing of the faith. But truly, as we get into this article on the marriage of priest, we'll find out exactly how important this may be for you and for your congregation. So as we look at this, the, we look at the background, and we see that the Roman church had gotten away with forcing celibacy on the priest, that they must be, to use their term, married to the church. Therefore, they should not have any external issues with having their family be a problem. So therefore, you must be single and celibate in order to be a good priest. But by the time of the Reformation, that had become a laughingstock, as we'll see this week. And really, the admonition from Paul to the teaching of demons being those who refuse marriage and those who demonize marriage coming true to life in this time, as we'll see over the next couple of weeks. But this week we look at exactly what we have in the filthy understanding of celibacy in the time of the Roman church in 1530. To do that, we're going to look at the first 25 paragraphs of Article 23 of the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, which takes into account the introduction to the article and the problems that are there mainline, but then the first four issues that Melanchthon points out from the Reformers' teachings about this idea of permanent and uh, perpetual celibacy. In spite of the great scandal about their filthy celibacy, the adversaries arrogantly defend pontifical law under the wicked and false excuse of the divine name. They even encourage the emperor and princess to the disgrace and scandal of the Roman Empire to not allow the marriage of priests. This is how they speak. Where in any history can one read of greater rudeness than this of the adversaries? We will review their arguments later. Now let the wise reader consider how shameful these good-for-nothing men are. They claim that marriages produce scandal and disgrace to the government as though this public scandal of criminal and unnatural lust glowing among these very holy fathers were a great ornament to the church, while they pretend that they are curiae and live like bacchanals. Most things done with the greatest license by these men cannot even be named without a breach of modesty. These are their lust, which they ask you to defend with your chaste right hand, Emperor Charles." Certain ancient predictions name you as the king of modest face, for the saying appears about you, one modest in face shall reign everywhere. Contrary to divine law, the law of the nations and the canons of the councils, they ask you to break apart marriages, to punish innocent men horribly merely for the sake of marriage, to put priests to death, whom even barbarians reverently spare, to exile banished women and fatherless children. They bring such laws to you, most excellent and most chaste emperor, to which no barbarity, however monstrous and cruel, could lend its ear. 
but because disgrace or cruelty does not stain your character, we hope that you will deal with us mildly in this matter, especially when you have learned that we have the weightiest reasons for our belief taken from God's word, which the adversaries reject with the most silly and vain opinions. All right, the great scandal about their filthy celibacy. This is the great problem, is because while trying to avoid scandal in the public light, truly behind closed doors, it was a horrible, filthy scandal. They claim that marriages produce scandal and disgrace to the government. And yes, there can be great scandals brought about by marriage. We have this in spades in literature, not even starting with Romeo and Juliet, but going back to like the Greek tragedies of Oedipus. Marriage can be a very horrible thing, but that's not every marriage. It's not my marriage. I hope it's not your marriage either. But because there are some bad marriages, well, we have to get rid of them all because we can't have that in the church. And here the problem is they pretend that they are curiae, very holy people, and live like bacchanals and great and wondrous parties and orgies and so forth like that as the Greeks would celebrate the god Bacchus. And they bring these laws to try to show the people how chaste and wonderful they are when truly they are most heinous in their underhandedness. Because, yes, they make laws that say that married priests must divorce their wives. If they will not, then they are to be put to death. And the widowed and orphaned that the church is supposed to take care of are shipped off somewhere else. Because that's not our problem. Because they shouldn't be there in the first place. And these are the very holy fathers of the church of the 16th century. And if you've seen... The at least the latest Luther movie, you have even the notations that even the Pope had his own mistresses throughout the kingdom and multiple children by them. This is not something that actually happens. And this is the main thing that Melanchthon wants to get across in this article, is that even the people who are forcing this to happen can't do it. All right, paragraph 5. Nevertheless, they do not seriously defend celibacy. They are not ignorant of how few there are who practice chastity. They create a counterfeit religion for their domain, which they think that celibacy helps. So we understand that Peter was right to advise that there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. 2 Peter 2.1 The adversaries say, write, or do nothing truly, frankly, and candidly in this entire case. They actually argue only about the domain that they falsely think is in danger and which they try hard to support with a wicked excuse of godliness. They don't defend celibacy. In the confutation, it's not celibacy that they defend. It's the demonization of marriage that they bring forth. The fact that the people in the holy orders need to be above the normal people, again, trying to create that difference between the religious societies and the common people, showing that the common people are more carnal, more sinful, 
than those in the religious orders. They don't even bother to actually try to do it. They just say this is what is needed to make this distinction even greater. So paragraph 6, we finish up the introduction to this article. We cannot approve this law about celibacy about the adversaries defend because it conflicts with divine and natural law and disagrees with the very canons of the councils. It is clearly superstitious and dangerous. It produces countless scandals, sins, and corruption of public morals. Our other disagreements need some discussion by the doctors. But in this matter, the subject is so clear to both parties that it requires no discussion. It only requires as judge a man who is honest and fears God. Although we defend the clear truth, the adversaries still have created certain reproaches for mocking our arguments. And simply put, in the end of the introduction, he says, this goes against natural law. This goes against natural human instinct. God wired us to be people who were in relationships, particularly the relationship of marriage. There are some who are equipped by God to be able to be celibate, to be chaste, and to be completely comfortable by themselves without marriage. But those are truly very few. So starting in paragraph 7, we get to the arguments for the marriage of priests. And we'll get through the first four of them this week. So paragraph 7 and 8. First, Genesis 1.28 teaches that people were created to be fruitful and that one sex should desire the other in a proper way. We are not speaking about lustful desire, which is sin, but about that appetite that is in nature in its perfection. They call this physical love. This love of one sex for the other is truly a divine ordinance, but since this ordinance of God cannot be removed without an extraordinary work of God, it makes sense that statutes or vows cannot remove the right to contract marriage. The adversaries object to these arguments. They say that in the beginning, the commandment was given to populate the earth. Now that the earth has been populated, marriage is not commanded. See how wisely they judge? Human nature is so formed by God's word that it is fruitful not only in the beginning of creation, but as long as this nature of our bodies exist. Humanity is fruitful just as the earth becomes fruitful by the word. Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed. Genesis 1.11 because of this ordinance, the earth not only started to produce plants in the beginning, but as long as this natural order exists, the fields are covered every year. Therefore, just as human laws cannot change the nature of the earth, so without God's special work, neither vows nor a human law can change a human being's nature. All right, the first thing they do is, yes, yes, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, in the beginning, God created marriage, but that was only because he wanted the earth to be populated. That was part of the be fruitful and multiply. Yes, but now that the earth has been populated, we don't need marriage anymore. We don't need people to bring about the next generation. That's one of the craziest things that, oh, yeah, no, we've got 8 billion people on the earth now. We don't need to have any more marriage. We don't need to have any more children. We have enough. But eventually the generations die out. So then what? We have to then restart marriage before it gets too late? He goes back to day three as the earth is sprouting forth vegetation after the dry land appears and says, it's still doing it. 
Even though the earth has been populated, the earth at, at one time was covered completely with plants and animals and all that, it still does it. So why is it that we can make marriage not happen? Because we can't change the fact that the ground does not yield crops. It just makes no sense. All right, paragraphs 9 through 13 are second argument for this marriage of priests. Second, because this creation or divine ordinance in humanity is a natural right, jurists have said wisely and correctly that the union of male and female belongs to natural right. Natural right is unchangeable. Therefore, the right to contract marriage must always remain. Where nature does not change, that ordinance which God gave nature does not change. It cannot be removed by human laws. Therefore, it is ridiculous for the adversaries to babble that marriage was commanded in the beginning, but is not now. This is the same as if they would say formerly, when people were born, they were born with gender. Now they are not. Formerly, when they were born, they brought with them natural right. Now they do not. No craftsman can produce anything more crafty than these foolish things. They were created to dodge a natural right. Therefore, let this point remain, that both Scripture teaches and the jurist say, says wisely, the union of male and female belongs to natural right. Furthermore, a natural right is truly a divine right because it is an ordinance divinely imprinted on nature. Because this right cannot be changed without an extraordinary work of God, the right to contract marriage remains. The natural desire of one sex for the other sex is an ordinance of God in nature, and for this reason is a right. Otherwise, why would both sexes have been created? As it has been said before, we are not speaking of lustful desires, which is sin, but of that desire called physical love. Lustful desire has not removed this physical love from nature, but inflames it, so that now physical love has greater need of a cure. Marriage is necessarily not only for the sake of procreation, but also as a cure. These things are clear and so well established that they cannot be disputed. The second reason continues from the first, that it is a natural thing. God created male and female to desire one another. To, yes, talk about being able to procreate and to fill the earth, but also to curb the desires of the flesh, to, de to curb the lustful desires that inflame each of our hearts. And paragraph 10 is so well suited for today. You would be surprised to see that this was written in 1530 and they were thinking about this. And, of course, when he's writing this, he's thinking this is the ludicrous thing. But now in 2022, this is being taught as the norm. It is ridiculous for the adversaries to babble that marriage was commanded in the beginning, but is not now. This is the same as if they would say formerly when people were born, they were born with gender. Now they are not. That sounds very much like 2022, doesn't it? So many Places are trying to inculcate the idea of gender fluidity that takes away what God has created in male and female and tries to make things a conglomeration of anything and everything that you can put yourself on a spectrum as regard to gender. No, you were created male or female, one or the other. Anything else is part of the original sin that breaks down what is given to us by God. That is a hard thing to say, but it is the truth. 
This is the truth revealed in God's word and revealed even here in the confessions. All right, a third argument takes up paragraphs 14 to 22. Paul says, Because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, 1 Corinthians 7, 2. This is a clear command having to do with everyone unfit for celibacy. The adversary is asked to be shown a commandment that commands priests to marry, as though priests are not men. We certainly judge that the things we hold about human nature in general also have to do with priests. Does not Paul in this passage command marriage for those who do not have the gift of chastity? Paul interprets himself a little later when he says it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion in chapter 7 verse 9. And Christ has clearly said, not everyone can receive the saying, but only those to whom it is given, Matthew 19, 11. Since Adam's fall into sin, these two things agree, natural appetite and lustful desire. Lustful desire does inflames the natural appetite so that now there is more need of marriage than in, in nature in its perfection. So Paul speaks of marriage as a cure, and because of these flames he commands marriage, Neither can any human authority, law, or vows remove this declaration. It is better to marry than to be aflame with passion, because they do not remove the nature or lustful desire. Therefore, all who burn keep the right to marry. By this commandment of Paul, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, all are held bound who do not truly keep themselves chaste. The decision about chastity is one of individual conscience. Here the adversaries command seeking chastity from God, weakening the body through labor and hunger. Why do they not proclaim these magnificent commandments to themselves? As we have said before, the adversaries are only playing. They are doing nothing seriously. If chastity were possible to all, it would not require a peculiar gift. But Christ shows that it needs a peculiar gift. Therefore, not everyone has it. God wishes the rest to use the common law of nature, which he has instituted. He does not wish his ordinances, his creations, to be hated. He wishes people to be chaste in this way, that they use the remedy divinely presented, just as he wishes that we use food and drink so that our life is nourished. Gerson also testifies that there have been many good men who have tried very hard to subdue the body, and yet made little progress. So Ambrose is right in saying, Virginity is only a thing that can be re recommended, but not commanded. It is a matter of vow rather than of precept. If anyone here would object that Christ praises those who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 19:12, let him also consider that he praises those having the gift of chastity. Because of this, he adds, let the one who is able to receive this receive it. For an impure chastity does not please Christ. We also praise true chastity, but now we are arguing about the law and about those who do not have the gift of chastity. The matter should be left free, and traps should not be cast upon the weak through this law. So picking back up again, the fact that we are fallen, sinful human beings, the lustful desires come up and inflame the natural appetite that God has put into our nature. So, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, 1 Corinthians 7. And so we have this great commandment of Paul that everyone be married who cannot remain unmarried and be faithful to God, and to curb their own desires. This is not something that can be laid down by the law. This is something that is in the heart and conscience of the individual. But the adversaries say, 
uh, just beat yourself up enough with labor and with hunger and fasting and you can get over it. No. So they bring up Ambrose. Virginity, the truest form of chastity, is a thing that can only be recommended. It is a matter of a vow, not a precept. You cannot command celibacy because not everybody can do it. Now we think of this, oh, well, no, God gave us an entire law that we cannot keep. Yes, Melanchthon will say the same thing and does very often. But that is the law that is given externally, not talking about the law that is inside of us. Yes, he has made us male and female to desire each other. And this does not be done away with because you take a vow to be a monk or a nun or a priest. This does not change the nature. The nature is there for desiring the resolution of these appetites, which are good and holy, not something to be considered as monstrous as the adversaries talk about it because they want to have some sort of barrier that brings most people to their knees saying, I can't deal with this. It's all about power. All right, paragraphs 23 through 25, our fourth and final one this week. The pontifical law differs also from the canons of the councils. The ancient canons do not ban marriage. Neither do they dissolve marriages that have been contracted, even though they remove from clerical office those who contracted marriage during their ministry. At those times, the dismissal was an act of kindness. The new canons, which have not been framed in the synods, but have been made according to the private judgment of the popes, both ban the contraction of marriages and dissolve them when contracted. This is to be done openly contrary to Christ's command. Whatever, therefore, God has joined together, let not man separate. Matthew 19.6 In the confutation, the adversaries exclaim that the councils command celibacy. We do not find fault with the council's decrees. Under a certain condition, they allow marriage. However, we do find fault with the laws enacted since the ancient synods, which the popes of Rome have created contrary to the authority of the synods. The popes hate the authority of the synods just as much as they want that authority to appear holy to others. Therefore, this law about permanent celibacy is peculiar to this new pontifical tyranny. Nor is it without reason, for Daniel 11.37 attributes this mark to the kingdom of Antichrist, hatred for women. So the law of the popes has made perpetual celibacy a thing, has made it commanded among the priest. And yes, there were times in the ancient church where men who married, who had been single when they became priest, were released from their charges so that they could start a family. This was considered an act of kindness. What happens is now you have men who are taken away from their flocks, not for kindness, but for punishment. The punishment? Falling in love with a woman. Following that natural desire for that appetite for the opposite sex. And that is not a bad thing. That is not a thing that needs to be done away with. It was kind of the joke in seminary. As one point in time, you could only have single men in the seminary, but they were sent off on their vicarage, their internship, 
to be reminded that there are women out there to find one to then be married by the time they got out to their first call. Many times this worked. Many times it did not. But the point is, there was still the idea of the natural desire. They wanted not to have the distraction of a family when devoting themselves to the study of the scriptures and the confessions and all the other things that we talk about in seminary. But still understanding that marriage is a good thing. That 99 plus percent of men and women need marriage. This cannot be undone. No matter what laws you make, and the popes tried for centuries to make these, it still did not work. Not even among the priests and even the cardinals and the popes themselves. It did not work. Well, that's all for this week as we look at the marriage of priests. Come back next week. We continue on the article as we will for the rest of the month of January to talk about this most important doctrine that became a very bad teaching in the church. But until next time, this is Pastor Doug Minton thanking you for being here in the confessional corner with me and hoping that it has better equipped you to wrestle with the theologies around you. Amen.